One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod. I am Brittany Luce. And I'm Eric Eddings. And on today's show, we're serving up a couple of delicious stories. Prepare to have your mouth salivate. Oh, God. Because later in the show, we're going to tell you about a guy who has taken his love for barbecue to another level. Yes, truly another level. But first, Eric, I want to tell you about this crazy project that I found out about. Okay. So, a few years ago, I was scrolling Tumblr. I mean, a lot of us were. That was pretty much all I did back in the day. Anyway, I came across this Kickstarter project for, you know, this black man. He was trying to raise money to tour the American South, growing and cooking Southern food, like in the traditional, like, way back antebellum way, on former plantation sites. Wow, that that sounds like an adventure. (laughs) (laughs) It is. is. So it turned out that this guy was Michael Twitty. He writes a lot about Jewish and African-American food traditions. He often goes by the name Kosher Soul on the internet. You know what I'm saying? Kosher Soul. Get it? You get it? Anyway, he's not like just a food writer. This guy teaches Judaic studies, and he's a culinary historian. So Michael, you know, he raised the money, and he went on this tour— And he dubbed it the Southern Discomfort Tour. And he spent a summer going all around the South. I mean, like from Charleston to New Orleans to, you know, pretty much any city in between. And he did these cooking demos for all types of people, all while wearing the same clothes that would have been worn by his enslaved ancestors. Wow. What? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, no, so he wasn't just like, he wasn't just going to the places and cooking and talking to people. He was like... He was doing, I mean, the whole, the whole thing. Yeah, this is a, it's a level of commitment that I am uh, not familiar with. Right, most, <laughs> most of us aren't. Anyway, Michael Twitty, he just wrote a book about his whole experience, and he called it the Cooking Gene. And you know, of course, I had to talk to him, and I had a million questions. You know, just about what it must have been like to recreate the experience of cooking as an enslaved person, you know, and to do it for a Southern audience. So I called him up for a conversation. And he started off telling me what it's like to get ready to cook on a plantation. I'm all alone. I'm chopping wood. I'm putting on the clothes. I'm getting ready to smell like human bacon, (laughs) you know, for the next 24 hours. Yeah. You You do your thing, and... Wait, you say you do your thing. That I feel like you skipped over a major yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, piece wait, of wait, information. I got, right you, I got you, my sister, because I want people to really understand. When you go to cook at home, what do you do? You open up the refrigerator, go in your pantry, you get the ingredients, you spread them out, you wash and prep them, and you just cook. I got to chop the wood. I got to wring the chicken's neck. 
Mm-hmm. I got to pluck the feathers. I got to dig the vegetables out the ground. I got to wash the vegetables off. I got to... <laughs> <laughs> I have to. I have to light a fire. I have to light a. Like, what craziness is this? Light a fire. A fireplace going. Big fire. Cook the cook the fire down in little coals. Put the pot on the back of the fireplace hearth so that I can get the pot boiling. So I can make the the soup or the sauce or the stock. I got to get this going and that going and make sure these pots are clean and make sure they're ready to go. That's three hours before I even start cooking. Gosh. I want people to understand. That's what. That's what it was like. And that's what you do when you go to do a demonstration. Oh, yeah. You go from soup to nuts, well, beyond soup to nuts. That's right. And some days, it's actually interesting to have it be in real time. In other words, mm-hmm. what it would be like to have the breakfast ready at, at 7, 30, 8 o'clock? What would it be like to then turn around within an hour and have the meal ready by 2? And knowing that it was like 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 courses, if not 12. What did you serve typically? Oh, that's a hard one because it varies by season. What was your favorite thing that you would serve? Well, I love to make okra soup. I love to make barbecue. I love to make fried chicken and, and yeast rolls. I like to make red rice, which is like African-American descendant of jollof rice. And I like to make sweet potatoes roasted in the ashes and watermelon preserves and um, okra pickle and black-eyed pea fritters and all that kind of good stuff. Now I'm upset. We need, we need, to, make, we need to fix that, my sister. I make the best pound cake in open hearth you ever had in your life. I actually do a mean pound cake myself, but in a convection oven. So uh, I make quite the well. Same when I make you that sweet potato pie, you're gonna you're gonna lose it. Look, I'm coming down. I come to DC like four times a year, so you don't have to tempt me with a good time. Cool, cool. It seems like you really know the traditions of your people, and something that I think about a lot when I think about the cooking gene and the Southern Discomfort Tour is that there is a lot of beauty in knowing the traditions of your people mm. and where those traditions came from, but creating that connection um, between the past and the present, you know, I, I can't help but think that comes at a painful cost. Absolutely. It's reliving like a generational horror. You know what I mean? It, it kind of feels like a, like a double-edged sword in a way. If this were easy, everybody would do it. The only thing I can only I can make it analogous to is, if you ever seen the movie Goes with Whoopi Goldberg, right? Yeah. And she fakes being a a, a, um, a medium, and then all of a sudden, the gate gets opened up, and she's a real medium, and she can't handle it mm-hmm. because now mm-hmm. everybody wants to, everybody has like something to say. Come on, come on, we got something to say. That's how it feels. That's how it feels when you roll up on these places, slave holding properties. Feeling the energy of our ancestors going, please tell our story. Come on. That energy hits you from the minute you get there to the minute you leave. And at first, it's extremely scary. I don't mean scary in the eerie sense. Scary in the sense of the baggage. Because you know they're there. They're waiting for you. I mean, can you imagine? Sometimes when I pull up to a spot, I close my eyes. And in my mind's eye... When we go through that gate or go down that long walk of oaks or whatever it is leading to that plantation, big house, mm-hmm. I close my eyes and I see the whole whole plantation community standing there waiting for me. Children running beside the car, wanting to see me. Mothers sold from their children. Men beat to death. They want me to tell their stories. There's times when I go there and I put on my clothes and I just break down and cry. Hmm. I don't let nobody see me. I just break down and cry. Then sometimes when I leave, I feel so light. 
because they feel good now. They feel like, oh, thank you. Nobody, we, we, we were forgotten. And we're your people. We're your mothers. We're your fathers. We're not just anybody's mother. We're your people, your blood. Emotionally, it's very draining. It's very powerful. And, Why do you say that? Oh, because they just they hit you. They know you're there. And they know that what you're there to talk about. It's like a lot of things are traveling through you. You know where they always say children, they come through you, not to you? Mm. It almost feels like the same thing. So you're feeling the spiritual essence of, of you know, everything around you. You're wearing the representational clothing. You're in these hallowed spaces. And then you cook. You're doing this for hours. And then you feed people. Mm-hmm. All types of people. White people, black people, older people, younger people. And then you guys talk. So what were the conversations like at, at your demonstrations? So one of the ones I point out in the book is when there were some white Southern ladies who were older, and they were hemming and hawing and looking around and grinning, and I thought this was so cute and so wonderful. And, mm-hmm. and there were some Germans. And German visitor says, How do you feel wearing the clothes of your ancestors who were slaves? And I said, well, how do you feel being, you know, the generation after the Shoah? And he knew that was Hebrew for the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And he goes, the Holocaust was a terrible thing. It never should have happened. Neither should have slavery. At which point, the white Southern ladies left. When he he grabbed the South by its collar and dragged it into this conversation about legacy reparations and the past and the present and responsibility— and never should have happened. And they rolled out. Wow. And then I had a nice little 20-minute talk with him, his wife, and his brother-in-law. All three of them were born roughly during or right after World War II in the shadows of what was a national insanity. And I mm-hmm. explained to them that I was Jewish. Hmm. And the man said to me, I didn't write this in the book because I can't, you can't write everything. Mm-hmm. But the man said to me, you know something? I'm so glad that you were born now that I can talk to you instead of my parents because my parents probably would have had you killed. Hmm. That You know, that kind of like, that kind of like, I don't want to ever have this happen again. I don't like this. I know that my parents and my grandparents did some heinous things that weren't right. And just not hearing that from, you know, our cousins, our mm. blood cousins, white Southerners, not hearing, you know, give, give, have them give up on that. Mm. You know, they're, I, I get, now don't get me wrong because progressive Southern people or white Southern people are some of the prime buyers of my work. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is that sort of like, you know, self forgiveness thing, which I don't have, I don't have any problem with. You have, if you have no problem saying never again and living by that credo and living up to that, I don't hold you, I don't put blame on you. At all. Because you're changing for the better. Um, it's the people who, like, you know, will fight to the death over an idol, a statue. Mm. I have serious issues with. And because I know that it's not just a statue for them. It's a, it's a symbol of, of voter suppression, symbol of law enforcement overreach that was born in the days of slave catching. I think people have done this, you know, we're cool thing. With slavery, that's why we have these what issues you, now. What do you mean we're cool thing with slavery? Like post-racial America? Yeah, this post-racial America began in 1865. I really believe that. For most white folks, post-racial America began in 1865. It didn't begin with Barack Obama. 
It began with, you know, we don't own you anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, I don't, I'm not an avid family guy watcher. I watch <laughs> it when, you know, somebody has them on the TV and I'm walking past the TV. And there's one time I walk right by just at the right time. It was a vignette where this white guy is like harassing and beating on his enslaved person. Then all of a sudden emancipation happens and he goes, oh, we're cool, right? And that's how I, and, and, and you know, all satire implied, I think I get a lot of that energy. Like, oh, we can just drop it. It's okay. We can move on. Nothing to see here. <laughs> and so you and so you created this tour to kind of... Yeah, to, to combat that. I'm subversive in my enslaved people's clothing. I don't do this to celebrate the good old days. And mm. I, don't do this to, I don't do this to make white people feel guilty either. I think whether white people feel guilt or not is really up to them. I believe, there, I believe there is a certain measure of national guilt that must be assumed. Mm. Germany does it. And if it's okay for Germany, if we all agree that Germany needs that national guilt to sort of, you know, assuage its historical tragedy, then damn right, well, I feel that's the same thing for America. I just want people to understand that I am coming at them from a, from a place of perfect subversion. I'm not there to make anybody feel comfortable or comforted. I want to disturb their notions of what history is and improve their notions of what the future can be. Some of your encounters were with people who were related to you, Mm -hmm. you know, somehow. Can you talk to me about what it was like, you know, having done the research and knowing who your people were and where they came from, and then coming upon someone who, you know, now reads and identifies as white, who's also related to you, you know, while you're doing all this work? You know something? (laughs) Hmm. It, it's it's something to be able to go through the South and have white people go, we're probably related. <laughs> that didn't happen 30 years ago, okay? Yeah. It is something to look in the eyes of a white cousin and see if you see the faces or eyes of your people. And sometimes they'd be shocked to death. They'd just be like, I can't believe, like the first reporter we had, he's like, yeah, my name is Cliff Bellamy. And I said, Bellamy? My great, 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 great granddaddy was a Bellamy. And see how the blood drained from his face. Like, I thought I was here just to cover your cute little whatever story. Wow. But yeah, I'm really your people. This reporter was white? Yeah. It was the first press coverage we got on the on the tour. Mm-hmm. And he came to my presentation in, in um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And he turned out to be my cousin. Wow. And how did, how do you think, how do you think he walked away from that? I don't know. I don't know because he didn't write about it in the story. Interesting. He didn't write about it in the story, which is which is which is very telling. What do you think it says? I don't know if he was ready to to put that energy out there to deal with that. Mm. I think I think so, for some Southern white people, I think for some Black Southern people, period, white and black. Let's be real. There is a, there is a certain amount of stigma because this is still a very thorny subject. Just because a good number of people are going, more, are going, you know, I'm sure we're related or whatever, is not the same thing as blanket acceptance of the subject. There are still certain things you don't talk about in the Old South, in, in company, with other people. I do those conversations on places where the conversation cannot help but be had, you know. It's not a conversation that you have, you know, down at, down at the restaurant or at the store or the church. But it's a conversation that you have on the historic plantation or museum where you know it's unavoidable. 
Thank you so much. This is like, this is a moment for me being able to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is great. By the way, if you want to, if you want to be really sexy to the person you're with, smell like human bacon. <laughs> um, it works every time. That's one of the few benefits of this nonsense. I love the smell of bacon. That actually is <laughs> would be would be great if I can convince Carla to, to just wear the scent of bacon all day. You know, actually, you really want to know something? What? I can't believe it. This is so stupid. You know, I used to go to the club a lot when I was younger. Okay. Yeah. But now I wouldn't do this. But I I've worn bacon grease as like perfume to the club. <laughs> you just <laughs> to you see just dab it, it on your neck. Difference. The sad thing is, I'm for some reason I'm not surprised <laughs> that this happened. I I was pretty lucky. I always met somebody when I went out. But you know, it's like, is it my personality or is it the bacon grease? Who knows? The world will never know. Anyway, after the break, you think making barbecue is not rocket science? We're going to tell you the story of one guy who proves otherwise. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Welcome back. Welcome back. So, a couple weeks ago, I heard about a man down in New Orleans who's got an, an okay job. Okay job. He's employed. But a pretty amazing hobby. His name is Howard Conyers, and his job is NASA rocket scientist. Whatever. Yeah. But the thing he's famous for is barbecue. And as luck will have it, Brittany and I were headed to New Orleans. So I dragged her along with me to meet him. You said this is a like this is a, a pit you made out of a refrigerator? Yeah. And it's like an old this is an old school refrigerator. Where'd you get this from? So when I renovated this house, it was in here. But um basically, I can't open it all the way because I got stuff in there. So I put this rack in here, these so I can put rebar across. And I cut a hole in the door and I got the refrigerator because it was full of plastic and insulation. 
I left it white because if I had painted it black, people wouldn't swear it wasn't a refrigerator. <laughs> I want people to know. I want people to know this chicken was cooked on a refrigerator. So we met Howard at his home in New Orleans, and he lives in this kind of like Southern Gothic, like old greenhouse. You know, it has like a like a really comfy kind of lived-in vibe. And the centerpiece of this place is the grill in the backyard. We'll show you what one pit looks like. We'll start here, just because it's easier. Sure. That's the refrigerator pit I was talking about. You could look in here. Oh, I see. Now I and Howard was a really cool guy. You know, he's kind of quiet. Like, I would describe him as somebody who maybe doesn't like to talk about himself too much. But if you want to get Howard talking, just bring up grilled meat. I'm 35 years old. I've been around barbecue really since I was like four years old. Some people only haven't worked a full career. I mean, I may not have been doing barbecue every day for 31 years, but it, just a lot of knowledge over 31 years. He had on this shirt that said, like, Kanye's family barbecue. And I was like, oh, this is like his family reunion shirt, you know? Like, And he was like, no, actually, it's just a, just a shirt I barbecue in. <laughs> Howard has a pretty complex relationship with barbecue these days. We're going to get to that in due time. But it all started pretty simple, you know, just special occasions on his family farm in South Carolina. When we had a family gathering, my father was more like cooking barbecue. So we would at least probably do at least four times a year, at least. Christmas, 4th of July, probably Easter, Thanksgiving. The pig was first. Turkey was secondary to us. So we don't, we don't start that night, 12 o'clock at night. Everybody all is dark outside. We, we started fires. And generally, not to sound sexist, but generally the males were outside together. And around those fires and shoveling coals underneath the pig, a lot of times males was sharing stories of the past. It kind of like conversation like the barbershop. And those holidays were like all-day barbecue training sessions for Howard. And his dad was his coach. He taught him the traditional South Carolina style. You know, cooking the whole hog, shredding the pork, covering it in like a vinegary, mustardy sauce. It's really good. I love Carolina barbecue. I love Carolina barbecue. But yeah, I mean, you know, his dad really taught him the ins and outs of good barbecue. Did you just pick this up? It's literally just like watching your dad? like Watching and doing. Like, you have to watch it. But then something as simple as making a fire. I had to learn how to make a fire. I had to learn about how to place coals underneath the pig. And that comes with experience, but it also comes with somebody teaching you. Like, certain things you got to learn for yourself with cooking a barbecue. But other things, you kind of, you have some mythology that may be passed down. Growing up, the farm was Howard's schoolyard. I gained a love for math and science on the family farm. I didn't know really the theory for math and the applications of it, but I understood the application of how it related to raising plants, raising pigs, why you apply fertilizer at a certain time, why photosynthesis occur. Wait, so what were your grades like? My grades were great. I had all, <laughs> I, I mean, I had most of the A's. I graduated from North Carolina A&T with a 4.0 GPA. All right. See? <laughs> <laughs> so that's all right for somebody from the country. <laughs> so Howard, you know, kept finding success with this math and science he learned on the farm. And he wanted to put that to good use when he started looking for a job. So like, when did you decide, like, I want to work at NASA? I couldn't believe I didn't work for NASA. Uh, I just looked up and found this job at NASA. I just applied through usajobs.gov. And I'm like, well, I need a job. And I got in. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, 
like, really? Because, like, my, my mom wanted me to be on the Border Patrol about five years ago, and I had to go to the same website. Yeah. <laughs> So Howard ended up getting that job, and it was based in New Orleans, which was, you know, kind of a big change. He had never really spent a lot of time outside of the Carolinas, but, you know, he got to New Orleans and he decided, you know what, I'm going to try to make it feel like home at least. And that meant finding some barbecue. When I first got to New Orleans and I'd go to eat barbecue, and one of the restaurants I went to, I'm going to leave it alone. I'm not gonna, well, I'm going to say it. The joint, they had this thing called Carolina Barbecue. I looked at the Carolina barbecue on the menu. I ordered it because, okay, I'm from South Carolina, and I think I know what Carolina barbecue should taste like. Then I tasted it, and it wasn't what I thought Carolina barbecue was all about. Howard thought, why don't I show these people what my barbecue is all about? Mm. So he entered a competition to give them a taste of the real deal. I went with what I knew. A lot of people had a lot more expensive equipment, but I said South Carolina barbecue, as I, as I remember it, was not anything, it didn't take thousands of dollars to pull off. And I want to demonstrate to these people who think they're really expert in cooking barbecue that you don't need thousands of dollars to pull this stuff off if you know how to do it. My setup was very simple. I only had one pit. I had a tent. I had a table. I didn't have anything fancy. I was kind of bare bones out there. Then when they tasted it, they're like, this is for real. This is not no, <laughs> pretend to be barbecue. So Howard, he didn't win. <laughs> but everyone started talking about him after the competition. Like, his shit was good. So word started to get around about how there was this NASA scientist who cooked whole hogs. And his name starts blowing up. Like, he starts doing cooking demonstrations. People start literally asking him to come cook for them. And he gets written about in Eater, New Orleans Magazine, and Southern Living. Okay, so you know, Eric, about my obsession with the cooking channel. Yes, you give me no other choice because you talk about it a lot. <laughs> you have to understand, Howard was on man fire food. Today, I'm doing South Carolina-style whole hog barbecue deep in Louisiana. I'm hanging out at Dockville Farm with Howard Conyers, a literal rocket scientist. He's designed a genius pit for smoking whole hog in the ground. So, so Howard, you know, he was really making a name for himself. And, you know, he's kind of enjoying his newfound popularity. You know what I'm saying? He's kind of soaking up his shine. But he also starts to take a deeper interest in the culture of barbecue. And while he's reading one day, you know, kind of just checking up on things, doing some research, he came across this list that just kind of stopped him in his tracks. Fox News named a paper, named a story about the 15 top pitmasters in the country. And in that pit list, there was no African-Americans. Not one. Not one. So rebuttals came out by other authors known barbecue scholars, they said enslaved Africans or enslaved on the plantations were the ones that were responsible for barbecue on the plantation. This was actually a surprise to Howard. Like, he'd been cooking barbecue for his whole life, but he didn't even realize it came from so far back. They have evolved and people have evolved technology, but they haven't really forgotten about where they came from because a lot of these, these people were sharecroppers. But to me, at that moment, it was sort of overwhelming, but also I knew I had a responsibility. Then when I started digging, they saw me, they used to cook these pigs in the ground in a long trench. And I used to always remember my father say he learned how to cook barbecue in the ground. And I asked my father, what was the pit that he used, looked like when he learned how to cook pigs? And he drew a sketch of it. 
And when I saw that sketch, I said, snap, this pit is almost the same pit as what these men was cooking on a plantation with. And then that's, realized, that's when I realized I was part of something much bigger than what barbecue was to just me at that moment. That pit that Howard's dad drew, it looked nearly identical to the pit that the slaves on the plantation were cooking barbecue with. It was like a link to history that Howard had never considered. And when we were there, he showed it to us. Howard pulled out this huge poster board with a collage of pictures he collected of Black people making barbecue. This figure to the right is a wood drawing of the late 1800s. And when you look at this particular pit, picture here of a pig, and you look at this particular picture here, they almost look identical. That's from 1944, and that's from 2017. We came from West Africa. My family been through plantation culture. These people who rode the slave ship over from West Africa, what I realized is I am on the shoulders of them, the sacrifices they made. So the best way for me to honor them is to do the best that I can do. Learning this history basically changed the game for Howard. So now when people ask Howard to come out and cook, he gives them a lesson, too, about the true history of barbecue. Who are you doing this for? You know, do you want America to know where, where barbecue came from? Or are, are you really doing this so, like, Black people know? I want Black people to know where this stuff comes from. If you don't know who you are, you don't know where you're going. The way I do barbecue is so people can see a glimpse of the past. I can't go around monkeying with something that was already perfected. You feel like, so you feel like it wasn't your, it's not yours to change? At, at this point, how I practice traditional South Carolina whole hog barbecue, it's not my thing to change. Barbecue is kind of Howard's second job. NASA is definitely 40, 45 hours a week, maybe 50 some weeks. But barbecue or history is probably another 20 hours a week, at least. It takes a long time to cook a whole pig, but it takes a really long time to get people to understand where that act comes from. And Howard is willing to give that time. I'm just curious, like, when you've been, has anybody pushed back on what you're trying to do? Some people have tried to say, like, barbecue is not all black. And I agree, it's not all black. You got some Native American contribution. Pork was brought over here by the Spanish, so you could think about some of those type contributions. But when you see, like, who was doing the heavy lifting of cooking barbecue on the plantation, there were very few white individuals who were cooking barbecue for 12, 13 hours or 16 hours. And if you got free labor you're, and you're in a position of power, you're not doing that work. Something I'm noticing about your kitchen table, I also noticed in the front of your house, is you have um, a bowl of, looks like cotton. Is there anything symbolic about that? So I have a lot of cotton around. Some of my family members hate it. Some of my older family members hate it because they pick it. But I use it as a reminder of, like, no matter how bad it get, this is where my family came from. And this is what got me to be where I am today. My grandfather was a cotton farmer. So it means a lot. I wouldn't be working at NASA if my grandfather wasn't a cotton farmer. You know how people say you can, like, feel the love in the food? Mm. Like... Sitting down with him after, I could feel and taste that, you know? But I could also just feel Howard's history in what he made. I always forget to say grace, but I just feel... 
<laughs> in this moment. I've been waiting all day. I'm about to dig in. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I've never had sausage like this in my life. <laughs> You know, I still think about that meal all the time. It was a highlight of like my life. <laughs> that sauce, I'll never forget that sauce. You know, we don't want to keep all of Howard's barbecue goodness to ourselves. We took pictures of his pit and some of the food that he cooked for us. You guys really have to see this spread that he laid out. So to do that, and to get more information on Michael Twitty's book, The Cooking Gene, check out our newsletter. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to it at gimletmedia.com slash newsletter. The Nod is produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce, Kay Parkinson Morgan, and James T. Green. Our senior producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. We are edited by Annie Rose Strasser. Engineering from Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. Additional music in the show by Talkstar and Bobby Lord. Special thanks to Zella Palmer and the Dillard University Ray Charles Program in African American Material Culture. Wait, so how do you season something that big? How you season a, pick a, a piece of chicken? Look, I, it's a lot of people that don't know how to season a piece of chicken. That's a clear problem in some white communities. <laughs> no comment. No comment.